0: Here are reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas "'Answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem "'who does not know the things that have happened here in these days?' "'And he said to them, What things?' "'And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, "'a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word "'before God and all the people, "'and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up "'to be condemned to death and crucified him. "'But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel.' Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he, was with, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that very same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You would please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise for today. Lord, thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into worship, Lord, with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the worship of song and confession. Lord, we pray, God, that you would continue to pour out your spirit among us as we continue to worship through word and through confession of faith and through Eucharist. Lord, we pray, God, that you would honor the reading of your word. Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds to understand and to hear and to believe, Lord, what you have spoken. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we explored the account of doubting Thomas in John's Gospel in chapter 20. And I, I say that to give context for anyone who has not listened to last week or was unable to join us. But last week, I made the comment that Jesus' sudden appearance in the locked room in that, in that scene was unexplainable due to the mystery of his glorified and resurrected body. Right. Now, I will boldly stand by that statement. Even with the question that comes up in our text today, right? Because today's text offers us another question regarding the glorified and resurrected body of Jesus, who now vanishes from the sight of these two disciples, right? So now, with this further evidence, I'll put in quotes, right, for those that are listening and not able to be here. With this evidence, does the claim, then, of the mystery of Jesus' glorified and resurrected body from last week still stand? Can we still make the claim, now that he's disappearing from rooms, that he's not a ghost or an apparition? Yes. (laughs) Right? And you're dismissed. No. Yes. And here's why. Right? That's because, as I was studying this text this week, I realized this is also a theophany. Right? This is an appearance of the divine. I will explain over the course of the message. Right? Now, unlike last week in John's gospel, this, what I will coin as the Emmaus theophany, right, is more concealed in nature. Similar to the three visitors to Abraham in Genesis, or to the person of Melchizedek, or even the angel of the Lord visiting Joshua in Joshua 5 right before Jericho falls. So as a quick refresher from last week as we start to dig in here, throughout Scripture there are generally three elements of a theophany that regularly occur with an appearance of the divine. There is fear from those who see the divine. Then there is a calming word. And then there is a commission. And that's how we'll frame this, because I think you can really see this here. And so beginning then, really in the biggest chunk of the text, verses 13 to 24, what we have Luke describing for us is the fear that is being experienced by the followers of Jesus through the testimony of these two disciples as they talk with each other and as they explain to Jesus himself what's going on. Right. So, so let's draw out some of these details. Right. Let's, let's look at a little bit of context, because that's what this section does. And helps get us into the headspace of this Emmaus theophany. And pay attention, really, to what their words—what we just read. Their words that they tell—they tell to Jesus as he comes upon them here, as they're explaining to him these things that have happened. These men are obviously heartbroken. These these disciples are heartbroken. They, and because of the testimony that they had heard from the women and even from Peter's visit to the tomb, they're also a little confused. But you look at this and you go, okay, well, hang on a minute. Now, who exactly were these disciples? So look at your text here. We're going to jump around a bit. And let's, let's try to set the scene a little bit. Let's let Luke set the scene. So we see there at the very beginning there, and on the, the very day, that very day, this is the exact same day as the resurrection. So this is the exact same day of what we looked at last week. That very day, two of them, well, that gives us some context, right? Now, here's two guys that are walking along this road. We're going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Well, now Luke has set this within a geographical place, right? We, we know what's happening. So there's two of them. They're walking towards Emmaus. Then we skip down a little bit, and we see one of them named Cleopas answered Jesus and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So now we've got the name of one of them. And then over in verse 33, this is now toward the end of this text, we read this, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered together with them. So, very quickly we learned, right, especially with that last verse, that these are not the eleven inner circle. These these are not those twelve, now minus Judas, men. Our Eastern Orthodox friends note that they say that this unnamed disciple in this scene is actually luke himself because it was a common literary device to not name yourself in a book you're writing right we see this in john right he he refers to himself uh, and we joke about it a little bit but he refers to himself as the disciple whom jesus loved right Um, other commentators though i find this interesting as well some other commentators mention that because of what we see in verse 34 the lord has risen indeed and has appeared to simon Some commentators say that this might actually be Simon the Pharisee, who is mentioned in Luke chapter 7. Another suggested that this might even be Mary, the wife of Cleopas, because she is one of the three women that are around the cross as Jesus is being crucified. Now, frankly, just for the sake of argument, I don't think it really fully matters, but I tell you this for this reason, because there's a specific detail that is important. That since these two were not of the eleven, We do know, though, that they were clearly part of the larger group of 72 disciples that Luke mentions in chapter 10. He doesn't give them by name, but we know Jesus sends out 72 others. And that detail is really quite helpful for us as we look at this scene for two reasons. First, these are disciples who followed Christ during his earthly ministry. So regardless of the fact that they were not part of the inner 12, they knew Jesus. They had listened to Jesus' teaching. They had followed him before his crucifixion. These were his disciples. And so because they were his disciples, they should have been able to quickly recall what Jesus had been teaching them about himself, particularly in the events of the aftermath of the crucifixion and then now this testimony from these ladies and the testimony from Peter who goes to the tomb and only sees the linen cloths just lying there, right? In reference to that then another question to ask here is this, because these two were indeed disciples and they should have been able to recall Jesus' teaching, well then why did they not perceive that this was actually Jesus to whom they were talking to? So notice what Luke says, it's here in these first few sentences there in your bulletin. He says, so again, that very day they were walking to Emmaus, two of them walking to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. Well, again, they've heard the testimony of the ladies, they've heard the testimony of Peter, they were talking about the crucifixion. And then while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, if you like to mark or if you're looking at a digital version of the Bible, highlight or underline or circle that word recognize. It will be important later. Again, our Orthodox friends comment here, and they state this. They say, Jesus intentionally prevented them from recognizing him in order to expose their doubting thoughts and then to cure them by means of the scriptures. And I absolutely love this. I think, I think it's great. That's a great comment. So notice, notice in these disciples' words to Jesus through the rest of this big section that they are recalling the events of the previous few days. And part of their failure to recognize Jesus as he comes alongside them is that ultimately, as you read through their words here, you understand that that Jesus did not meet their expectations of who they thought the Messiah should be. They did not recognize Christ for who Christ is. Instead, they had created a false image of the Christ in their minds and in their hearts. So listen again to what they say. And so Jesus says to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all these things, it is now the third day since these things happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, Who said that he was alive and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They had failed to rightly understand that the Christ, even after years of following Jesus and hearing his teaching, they had failed to rightly understand who he was. And because of their faulty expectations of the Messiah, the Lord kept their eyes from recognizing him. But their faulty expectations go much deeper than simply not recognizing him physically. We see very quickly that they were also prevented from recognizing him spiritually. Notice again, by their own admission, they had been provided with very significant evidence that Jesus was risen. They were still, but they were still filled with gloom and unbelief. Again, moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so then, right, if you want to embellish a little bit, so then some of our own company went and went to the tomb, and they did not find his body, and they found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. They had been provided with some pretty clear evidence. Jesus is not there anymore. And even angels from the Lord have come and said, He has risen. But even still, they are filled with gloom and unbelief. They're filled with fear. And so within their fear, within their gloom, within their unbelief, Jesus speaks to them two calming words in this passage. The first one is actually in verses 17 and 19, respectively. He simply asks them some leading questions. And so he says, he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? He knows, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows exactly what they're talking about. He's not stupid, right? And so they stop, right? They stop and they they look at each other and they have these sad, gloomy, depressed faces on. And Cleopas asks a very bold question to God. You know, uh, Are you stupid? Right? Do you not realize what's happened? And then he says, well, what things? Right. So he, he speaks these two calming words in some leading questions. Never underestimate the power of a good leading question in conversations with people, especially when you're talking with them about the things of Jesus. Because one of the best ways to allow anyone to process their fear and their unbelief is to help them process it verbally by the use of simple questions. Help them talk it out. Because we see Jesus giving us the example of this here because by asking them these questions, he quickly places himself in a position to respond to their answers with a correct understanding of Scripture. So they give him this whole Explanation. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And so he responds them with a second calming word there, starting in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scripture, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Notice this is a very gentle rebuke, but it's a pointed rebuke, right? They had been with Jesus. They had learned from him, as he had already explained to them over the course of his earthly ministry everything that the prophets and Moses and the Psalms had spoken of about him. They had seen miracles and they had seen healings and the raising of the dead. And they're still in unbelief, and so, very gently but pointedly, he does it again. Right? He explains it all to them again because we are all prone to forget, especially during times of fear. But but don't miss the weight of how Jesus rebukes them here and what they have said. Right? So backing up here, he says they say that this. They say this to him. They say and even how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus tells them very directly in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He shows them that it is not merely enough to believe that the Messiah would simply be glorious in power and majesty, but also that the Messiah had to suffer. It is only a partial faith that believes in a Messiah who only suffered or in a Messiah who only will reign in power and glory. Complete faith in Christ requires both. Because both suffering and glory are the entire testimony of God about the Christ from the scriptures. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and then beginning with Moses and the prophets? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Their fault is that they did not trust the testimony of God from his scriptures. They should, and we should, as he tells us in verse 25, believe all that the prophets had spoken. It was always God's plan for the Christ to suffer and then to be glorified. One commentator writes here, and he says... Jesus did not overwhelm these two disciples by some spectacular revelation of himself. Yet. I like that yet there, right? Because we're not done with the text. (laughs) He goes on and he says, Instead, Jesus interprets the scriptures for them because they needed to hear the word of God to clear up the confusion of their own words. And so now that he started to clear this up, we finally reached them what I would call the commission of this theophany, which is the rest of this text. And this is where I really want to devote just the entirety of the rest of our time. So listen again, and we'll draw out these details that Luke, Luke describes for us here, but particularly pay attention to verses 30 through 32. And so we see this then, and they draw near to the village to which they were going. They were heading to Emmaus, so they've walked the seven miles, and in seven miles Jesus has explained the entirety of biblical theology to them. No one can do that right? other than Christ. And so he acted, though, as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, starting in verse 30, which is him at the table with them there in your bulletins, we see really, very simply, the beauty of hospitality, right? And the hospitality of a shared meal. The disciples offer, in verse 29, they offer hospitality to Jesus, and he offers it to them in return by the blessing of this meal, right? He blesses the bread. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to them. Now opinions on this verse abound from every era of Christian history from the Fathers to the Reformers to the Medievals and even to modern day commentators. Nobody has a concise opinion on this. And the questions around this are simply this. Is this the Eucharist? Or is this only just a shared meal? You get together, you have a meal together, it's a shared meal. Or Could this be something altogether different? Now Calvin, he goes for simplicity. And it's kind of funny to read his comments on this. He gets really feisty sometimes. But he notes here, he says that it was simply Jesus' custom to bless bread before breaking it and sharing it. Okay, fine. I'll I'll give Calvin that. But I want to be complicated because that's just who I am as a person, right? So let's do something mean, right? Let's take a stick and let's stick it into the spokes of his bicycle wheel, right? Let's trip Calvin up a little bit and let's have fun with him. Right? So let's note by to do that, let, let me say this: there is absolutely nothing in this entire text that precludes this meal from being a custom, a shared meal, or the Eucharist all at the same time. And so to prove that point, I'm going to just stick with Luke's gospel. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, we're going to bounce around the gospel of Luke. And we'll start in chapter 2, toward the end of chapter 2, if you want to make your way there. And as we do this, I'm going to build up in complexity. Right? So simplicity then, let's start with Calvin. Let's start with his idea of custom. right? This is just simply the custom of Jesus to just adhere to custom. Right? And look in two places, starting in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to have to turn there myself. Luke chapter 2 in verse 42, we read this. Now, he is a boy. This is when he is going up into the temple. And we read starting in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So here's this idea. Luke is reminding us that Jesus is being honorable to the law and following the custom of his people. Skipping over just two chapters to chapter 4, verse 16, this is now Jesus being rejected at Nazareth. That's the context of the whole passage. But we see here, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So, again, Jesus has a custom of keeping the law, of keeping the traditions of his people. And for Calvin, you know, his point is that this same custom then carries over to Jesus' blessing and breaking of the bread at a meal. All right, so there's custom. What about this idea of it being simply just a shared meal? It's nothing more than that. Well, skip over to chapter 5. So you're only going over one more chapter. And in verse 27, we read this. This is the calling of Levi or Matthew. So chapter 5, verse 27. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So, again, jesus it's not uncommon for Jesus to share a meal with people. And, of course, regarding custom, I guess it's kind of the customs of the Pharisees, right? Because you see in the next verse, the Pharisees and their scribes are grumbling at the fact that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. So, a shared meal. Skipping over to chapter 7, just in verse 36... From verse 36 all the way to verse 50 is this story of a sinful woman being forgiven. And we read this here. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. So again, this is Jesus just sharing a meal with someone. Now this is the story of Simon the Pharisee. Possibly, if some commentators are correct, the same Simon that is now sitting at the table with Jesus in Emmaus. Where he's just blessed bread and broken it and given it to them. Right. I like, that. I like that explanation. I think that's just, I'm not saying that that's the case, but it is kind of fun to think about. All right, so that's custom and that's shared meal. Finally then, skip over to Luke chapter 22. And we read about the institution of the Eucharist. And we read in verse 19, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he was at the table with them he took the bread he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Now I am of the opinion that the intention of what is happening here is the Eucharist even if this is not a formal observance of it. But I do think we can rightly say that this is a blending of all three opinions. It is Jesus's custom to bless bread and to break it. It is also his custom to share a meal with people. But it is done, I think, in the spirit of the Eucharist. Because, notice what happens in the next verse, as part of this commission. It leads to the revealing of Christ. We see in verses 30 and 31, again, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So again, here we go, right? We have this idea of him vanishing, right? We don't have a good scientific answer. This does not meet our curiosity, right? Last week we had Jesus physically and bodily showing up in a locked room, and now he's vanishing into thin air, right? So so what's the answer here? Again, I'm going to take the easy way out and say this is a mystery of his glorified and resurrected body. But, because I like to use the word but, right? But that doesn't mean that we cannot understand what Luke is telling us here in this passage. So, Let's dig into the language a little. I only have two words I want to bring out regarding the Greek. But I want to take my time with it with you guys because I think this is important to understanding exactly what's going on in this Emmaus theophany. So there's two words in Greek that Luke uses here that are important for us. The first one is for this word, recognize. The other one is the word for vanish. For the word recognize... We could also translate this word almost, I would think, better as to know or to perceive. Whereas the word for vanished in the Greek means hidden or invisible. Now, remember when we were back in verse 16 and I asked you to circle or underline the word recognize in verse 16? Here's why. Because this is the exact same word that Luke uses in verse 16 as he does in verse 31. The two disciples were kept from recognizing Christ. They were kept from knowing Christ as he came up to them on the road. You see, Luke, and I've mentioned this before when we've been in Luke's gospel, Luke has a habit of what I call bookending, right? So think of bookends on a shelf, right? And he does this for a very important reason. He frames his gospel, and he also frames specific stories and scenes within his gospel with these bookends, in order to draw our attention to important details in that story. And within this Emmaus theophany, everything has to do with rightly knowing who Christ is. In the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Augustine proclaims here, he says, Jesus desired to be known in the breaking of the bread. And then he states this about these disciples. He says, their eyes were restrained so that they would not know him. They weren't restrained so that they wouldn't see him, but they were held so that they would not know him. Because, he asks this question, he says, where does the Lord wish to be known here? He wishes to be known in the breaking of the bread. And then he says this, and this is so helpful. He says, it is for our sake that he wasn't known anywhere but within the breaking of the bread, because we do not see him in the flesh. And so he says, if you are a believer, then you're not called a Christian for nothing. You don't come to church pointlessly. You listen to the word of God in fear and in hope. And so then, take comfort in the breaking of the bread and have faith, for the one you cannot see is with you. What is it that Jesus told Thomas last week when we were in John 20? He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In the breaking of the bread, these disciples know that this is Christ. And then he's hidden immediately. Which for me brings up this question of why? Why? Hey, we see who you are now. We perceive you. Why now vanish? I think it is because so that they would get up and go proclaim him as bodily resurrected and be believed in by faith. Notice how this passage continues then in the next verse. Because what they do is they confirm, this confirms the scriptures. They said to each other then, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This, I think, is the key to this entire theophany. Because while the breaking of the bread is the central focal point, it's the bookends that Luke uses to get our attention, within the breaking of the bread, by revealing himself in such a way, Jesus confirms to them the testimony of the scriptures that the suffering and the glorification of Christ was always the purpose of God from the beginning. Because this verse is now the result. Verse 32, what we just read, is now the result of hearing the Scriptures taught correctly and taught with the purpose of bringing faith. After Jesus vanishes, after he is hidden from their sight, these two disciples remark immediately how their hearts burned with joy as Jesus correctly taught them the Scriptures. Meaning... That the right and correct teaching of the scriptures is to always be coupled with the breaking of the bread. But the inverse is also true. We are not to break the bread without the right teaching of the scriptures. Jesus explains this to us clearly in three verses. And speaking of him vanishing or hiding, Augustine says this. He says, Christ withdrew from them in the body since he was now held by them in faith. And this is indeed why the Lord has ascended in the body into heaven for the building up of our faith. Calvin says this, he says, So far then, as it was necessary to assure them of his resurrection, he made himself visible to them. But by his sudden departure, he taught them that they must seek him elsewhere other than in the world. Because the completion of the new life was in his ascension into heaven. And then speaking of this confirmation of the scriptures, I love how Origen says this. He says, our hearts burn from both the testimony of the spirit and the scriptures. And he says, this shows that we must not only employ zeal to learn the scripture, but also pray to the Lord and to entreat him to come and himself open the book for us. For it is he who opens the scriptures and it is he that kindles the hearts of his disciples. God has designed very clearly, both word and sacrament to bring us into a clearer knowledge of who he is by his grace and by his mercy, by giving us the eyes to believe in him through faith. And the breaking of the bread is central to this text because what it does is it confirms the testimony of the scriptures. And so notice here, again, these, these disciples get up and they immediately leave and... And they go tell the eleven and they say, He was known to us in the breaking of the bread. By that one sentence, those eleven would have picked up immediately on the connection from about four days before. As Jesus took the bread and broke it on the night he was betrayed. And he explained to them that the bread was his body which was given for their sake. And in the same way we are all to do likewise in remembrance of his sacrifice on the cross. This sign of the breaking of the bread is central for them because these disciples failed to know Jesus as the suffering and the crucified Redeemer. And he is only made known to them in the moment that the bread is broken and only because he had first explained to them from the Scriptures that it was always God's intention for the Christ to suffer and then to be glorified. And from what Christ has done here, and from what Luke has recorded here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I do not think it would be wrong for us to proclaim that through the illuminating power of the Spirit on our hearts and on our minds as believers, that as we worship, as we sing together, as we hear the Scripture read and proclaimed, as we hear the liturgy in the breaking of the bread of the Eucharist every single week, Christ is revealed to us. In a more complete and mysterious way than we can ever experience on this side of heaven. One old commentator writes this. He said, those whom Christ lodges with, he feeds. And he feeds with the bread that is himself. And the bread that he is blessed. And this feeding, he says, not only strengthens, but it enlightens the soul. And the breaking of the bread, coupled with the right teaching of the scriptures... Christ is made known to his church to be believed in by faith. Now last week I stated that every time we gather we experience a quote-unquote little theophany because we are all, all believers in the room are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. We have the Spirit of the living God living in each believer in this room. And our own regular Sunday gathering follows the same pattern as Luke 24. We enter into worship fearful from a week of horrible news around the world, right? We're exhausted. We don't know what's going to happen from day to day. We're terrified. Will there be war? Will there continue to be rumors of war? What's going to happen? Will the economy collapse? What's our government going to do today? But we enter into worship fearful. And then we receive a calming word from the Lord through the music, and through the liturgy, and through the hearing and the reading and the teaching of Scripture. And as we come forward to Eucharist, we receive the same commission. Every single week, whoever is officiating the Eucharist says a similar version of this phrase. Eat, drink deeply, beloved of the Lamb. Remember and proclaim what Christ has done. And now, go and make disciples and be fruitful and multiply. Amen.